0: When I was a kid, I believe that fortune cookies said things like, you will meet a tall dark man, you will become a millionaire tomorrow, and it wasn't stuff like, smiles make the world go round, (laughs) or, you know, give your mom a hug someday. Fortune cookies used to actually be fortunes as opposed to feel good bullshit. I think. It totally failed. So
1: spoiler alert. All this being said, that's why we're interested in Chinese takeout. I'm Sarah Lohman, and this is...
0: Jonathan Soma. I have a first name.
1: (laughs) This is Jonathan Soma.
0: No, this is Jonathan Soma. (laughs) Of the Brooklyn Brainery. A wonderful place in Brooklyn where you can take classes about anything and everything. And I even personally will teach you about the Loch Ness Monster or baking science or doomsday cults stuff that's really important for your everyday life
1: and i write the blog four pounds flower and i look at food history i guess more importantly historic astronomy i like looking at the past and seeing how it affects the present day and digging up old recipes they're either phenomenal or horrific Uh, and today we are talking all about the history and science and legend and fact and fiction of um, Chinese takeout. Chinese
0: takeout.
1: Today we're going to talk about, well, first of all, where Chinese food in America came from, number one. And s- specific to New York City, too, because the takeout industry really evolved right here in New York and in Manhattan, too. So number one, where it came from. Um, number two, fortune cookies and the story behind them. Number three, a little bit about regional cuisines and how Chinese food changed in the latter half of the 20th century, and our affection for Chinese food grew after one of our presidents went to China. And it wasn't George Bush.
0: It wasn't, no. That
1: ended badly. Yeah. Not too badly.
0: Uh, There is apparently a word in Japanese, it's a verb, and I believe it's burushu, which is just Bush, and it means to like, throw up in a public place <laughs> so you, you're basically i mean he didn't he didn't do it in japan but it's basically like the japanese equivalent of like called pulling a bush We're
1: embarrassing and it's just puking it. in
0: public B- budu shoe i believe
1: so which republican president was a lot cooler when he went to China. You'll find out later this hour on the Masters of Social Gastronomy podcast. So stay with us.
0: Strap yourselves into your seats.
1: Musical interlude. <laughs> We're really good at that. Okay, so I'll start, I'm will start. i gonna start a little bit with the history of Chinese immigration and Chinese food, sound okay?
0: That sounds incredible. In
1: brief. Let me tell you a little bit about where Chinese people in America came from. Uh, Primarily originally to the West Coast. Canton's economy started falling apart. And it became
0: What is Canton?
1: Okay, so Canton is a province in China. Today it's called Guangdong. Okay? And we still get immigrants from Guangdong, but not as many today. This is traditionally, and when traditionally I mean starting in the 18th. 1920s and 1830s and a lot of them are going through San Francisco and this is like California as like frontier time This is before the gold rush and when California was the frontier It was kind of like I don't want to say everyone was friends, but society was a bit more equal In fact in 1849 when California became a state 40 Chinese business owners were part of the kind of inaugural state ceremonies when the gold rush hits 1848 And a lot more, the state population is exploding and it gets a lot more competitive. There is a lot more division between people who are white and people who are not. And there's a lot more discrimination against people who are not. And there are even taxes levied against people who are seen as non-American, read non-white, and specific laws that are geared towards Chinese immigrants too. So after statehood, things are made a lot more difficult towards mostly Chinese men, laborers who are living in California. Chinese men who are there are working some in agriculture. They try to work in mining, but they're essentially pushed out of the industry. And they work in a lot of industries that are considered in a way women's work, quote unquote, because there are industries that the mining men aren't going into. Things like laundries, some general stores, and a lot of restaurants too.
0: Do you know how many Chinese people were in America back then.
1: So, in 1850, we have about 4,000 mostly again Chinese men living on the west coast or in all of America but focused in California. And then by within a decade, we we have about 30,000. Chinese men, mostly again, predominantly Chinese men. And this is really spurred by the California gold rush that there is industry and there's a lot of booming agriculture and California has just become a state too. However, there is a lot of racism focused on Chinese culture on the West coast. If you want to read a good history of immigration on the West coast, including Chinese history, uh, Angel Island immigrant gateway to America, is a really good read and kind of breaks up immigration by ethnicity. It's really fantastic. So that's where a lot of Chinese immigration began but right after the Civil War we started building Transcontinental Railroad and a lot of Chinese men got in on building the railroad because it was an industry that they were accepted in and it was also a way out of California where there were a lot of racist laws focused on them. Which interestingly, did you know that there were a ton of civil rights laws put into place after the Civil War? I know there was a civil rights law of 1871 that said that you couldn't you couldn't make laws that were Dis, like distinguish people by race when you couldn't make punishments that were worse based on people's races.
0: That's wild.
1: Wild. So California was making laws, like specifically they had a law that if you were arrested you'd have your head shaved. Now that's problematic if you're Chinese because men coming from Canton had what were called the Q's, the long braid of hair. And so if you were arrested it was shameful to have that shaved off. So it was super specific because they would make excuses to arrest Chinese men and then shave their heads. Right. What was so interesting, though, is these, Cal- these Chinese men living in California were very litigious. So they would actually take these laws to court and it would go all the way to the Supreme <laughs> Court and then get overturned. So they were active. They weren't just like, you know, whimpering and taking it. They were battling this shit. So anyway, all that aside, they how about the transcontinental railroad. When that's finished in eighteen sixty nine, that's when New York really sees its first influx of a Chinese population. There had been a tiny population in Chinatown as far back as 1830. But in 1860, when we have 30,000 Chinese men living in America as a whole, there are about 50 Chinese living in New York City. So we've got a Chinatown that's about three blocks big. It's bordered by five points. Have you seen Gangs in New York? Yes. Yes. Okay, so if you've seen Gangs in New York, that's five points. Predominantly Irish and African-American neighborhoods, still a little bit by the 1860s also right on the edge of Chinatown. So Chinatown has always been bordered by other ethnic neighborhoods. Later on, it's bordered by Jewish and Italian neighborhoods, too. So it's always been around other cultures, too. So what happens? So we've got this itty-bitty little Chinatown, three blocks wide, okay? Just starting in the early 1870s. Then in 1873, we we have this huge national recession called the Panic of 1873. This recession is so bad that by 1874, 25% of New Yorkers were out of a job. The comparison, in 2011, 12% of New Yorkers lost their job. So it's pretty bad, and it lasts a long time. And in times of economic recession, we tend to look at immigrants, blame immigrants, and in general, kind of shut the gates, right? We swing those gates open when things are doing well, shut them when they're not. So, as a result, in 1882, we put into place a law called the Chinese Exclusion Act. Now, this, in a way, is... The
0: craziest thing that has ever been done. Have you
1: been doing some reading about it?
0: It's just crazy. It
1: came out of the recession, but it also came out of the snowballing of those... Continuous racist laws coming out of California. Right. Yeah, why, and why do you say it's crazy, Simone?
0: You tell me. You tell me about it.
1: I mean, it's just fucked up because it just said Chinese people can't come to America right? anymore for How, no reason. What? What a
0: fucking blanket thing to say. Not even, I mean, I guess we just have quotas now or whatever with people coming from different countries.
1: I mean, our system today isn't very good, but it's not ethnically based. We have consistently had a problem with people coming from Asia, essentially based on the fact that they look different. We've looked at, it doesn't, it was one country after another, but it started with China. We looked at Chinese people and said, you look different and you are unassimilable. That was the word that was always used. You're unassimilable to American culture. You are different. You're going to be different. And it didn't matter how hard the people who immigrated here tried to become a part of American culture, we stopped them. We wouldn't let them go to American schools. We wouldn't let them, be, you know, take on American businesses. We both said that they couldn't become a, that they wouldn't become a part of American culture, and at the same time, did everything we could to prevent them.
0: And so, what year was that passed in?
1: 1882.
0: Do we it, want to reveal when it was
1: finally we, repealed? Yeah. 1965. <laughs> Yeah, we're great. It's so
0: fucking incredible. It's so fucking incredible. That's amazing. Incredible.
1: So I can't, It. it's, we really wanted a certain type of immigrant here. We would still allow merchants, scholars, anyone who was moneyed and educated. We did not want laborers, low class. And you'll see that again and again. This would eventually extend to not just China, but all of Asia, But then beyond to Eastern European Jews and Southern European Catholics would all kind of get lumped into this, this laboring class that we didn't want in this country. So just when Chinese immigration was really starting to pick up in New York, it, the doors were slammed shut. Boom, no more Chinese in America. And it's amazing. People don't even really remember that this happened anymore. But they were here already. So And because they were bumped up against these other groups, like the Irish, who people also hated, a lot of Chinese men were marrying Irish women, which, by the way, after a certain point, if an Irish woman married a Chinese man, Chinese men were not allowed to become citizens. They were called ineligible for citizenship because of their race. She would lose her citizenship.
0: No! Yes!
1: Yes! Fucking
0: America, man. Fucking
1: America. So they married and had families of their own. And uh, there's this great quote by Arthur Schwartz, who's a, a great New York food historian. He said, by the beginning of the 20th century, there were really two Chinatowns, the tourist-oriented Chinatown that played into the Caucasian concept of the mystical Orient and the real Chinatown, which gave a place to live and a sense of community to its hardworking citizens. But there are still two Chinatowns today. There's Canal Streets where you go and buy knockoff bags and knockoff perfume and then you go a few blocks either side and you're in these real neighborhoods with schools and restaurants and it's still a real Chinese community. So there are these two parts of Chinatown, one for Caucasians and one for the real Chinese people who live there. And there are still walking tours for people who are tourists, I was just on one, to go down to Chinatown and sample the food there. And a hundred years ago, even though we banned immigration from China, there was still this American obsession with Orientalism and the other, and this mysticism of Chinatown. And you could go on walking tours of Chinatown a century ago. They were called slumming parties. That was the turn of the century name for walking around Chinatown. And a typical slumming party in 1909 was described as having not a New Yorker in it, except for the Jewish guide. They were all out of town tourists. They would kind of visit the fantastical parts of Chinatown that were probably put on for the people who were visiting. They would go to an opium den, and you could tip someone to smoke opium for you. It's true
0: for you. Yeah, they so would, you wouldn't do it, but someone else would.
1: No, but I, but I have seen photos of people like tourists posing on the opium beds. Mm-hmm. You know that you would like collapse on after when you were in your haze. Right, so you would like pose with a pipe in your mouth and take get a photo taken. That's yep.
0: not nearly fun enough. Right. That's, yeah.
1: Um, you would go to then a Chinese playhouse, maybe see like a little bit of an opera. You would go to a fortune teller, and then at the end of the tour, the part that was the most important was you'd go to a chop suey house. You ever had chop suey, Soma?
0: You know, I believe when researching this MSG, I went on a quest to, to find, find chop suey. And it was incredibly difficult to find. I eventually found it, but I just ran across it again at an Indian street food restaurant Whoa. in Queens that had. Like, Indian street food along with some, like, Chinese Indian dishes. And it had chop suey, and I thought, I love that they have held on to chop suey for this long, while other restaurants that are, do nothing but sell white people Chinese food. It's kind of slipped from the menu.
1: Because one of the fun things about Chinese food in general is that Chinese takeout exists all over the world, and all over the world, it's adapted to whatever culture it's ended up in. So we went to Tangra Masala, which is in Jackson Heights, Queens, and it's an Indian Chinese food. Um, And it is of, it's named after a neighborhood that is known for its Chinese population in India. And it is serving Indian style Chinese food that developed in India, that's now serving an Indian population that's immigrated to New York City.
0: And so at this restaurant, I had the most fusion dish possible, which was a paneer Szechuan sandwich, which brought together the paneer, the cheese of Indian cuisine, and the Szechuan of Chinese cuisine, and the sandwich of American cuisine. It wasn't like a grilled cheese, sadly, because paneer doesn't melt. It was a wild sandwich. It took me for a wild ride.
1: It sounds delicious. Was it?
0: It was very spicy. I just had my wisdom teeth out the day before, so I couldn't eat it uh, (laughs) as adequately as I wished. Uh, But it was pretty good. It was pretty good.
1: So chop suey is a hard thing to find in New York City in 2014, really anywhere, because it's Cantonese, and most Chinese takeout today is no longer Cantonese cooking. Or I bet someone listening to this podcast is losing their shit right now because I call it Cantonese food. So chop suey is a dish that was invented in America, but it is a stir-fry. It's using a Cantonese cooking technique, and it was invented by Cantonese men preparing food, probably in New York City. The exact origins are tough to find. There's a lot of different legends about where it came from, and probably none of them are true. So I don't even want to give any of them enough credence to say this happened or this happened. Basically, the Prime Minister of China came to New York in 1896, and it piqued uh, national curiosity. He toured the country. People got interested in Chinese culture. We were already into Orientalism, and this was even more so. So this dish was probably already around, but a lot of restaurants began advertising chop stewie as the Chinese Prime Minister's favorite dish. So it was like, come in and try his favorite food. Chop suey is a stir fry that in Cantonese, the word satsue means um, like like little bits of stuff. It means essentially entrails. It's made originally from chicken gizzards, livers, and hearts cut into little pieces and stir fried with vegetables. And the recipes I've seen from the 19th century, that means mushrooms, bean sprouts, things like that. You serve it over rice and it's a very soy sauce heavy dish. And you know, it was like American Chinese vegetables, like mushrooms from a can and water chestnuts from a can. So it's This American Chinese style dish, but it's often dismissed as not being Chinese. And I'm kind of over talking about American hyphenated cuisines like that, because I really believe that foods in this country that are using cooking techniques from a certain culture and are using ingredients that are either American plus that culture or whatever and cooked by people coming from that country... Food is just coming here and continuing to evolve. This dish was created for what was on hand. It was created to appeal to American audience. And it was important because it was a dish that attracted Americans to be interested in what was going on into Chinatown. It attracted Americans to be interested in Chinese food, and it really opened the door for Americans to be adventurous, come to Chinatown, eat the food there, and then subsequently try all the other foods that would eventually come from all the different provinces of China, and then eventually all the different countries in Asia. By the early 20th century, it they kind of lost the organ meats and replaced it with actual meat, like pork, chicken, and beef, but we still call the same thing, chop suey, and you put in things like garlic, pepper, or soy, um, it was even the sort of thing like that you would serve to the bridge club if you wanted to be a little exotic, and if you couldn't find soy sauce, you could substitute Worcestershire sauce, like... They'd show ways to make it easiest. But if you wanted to get complicated, some newspapers even printed instructions on how to, like, sprout your own beans. So you could really be impressive and exotic for your friends. And it was probably the earliest form of takeout that you could, um, from the New York Tribune in 1903 said, few bohemian gatherings are complete without a pail of chopped suey brought fresh and hot from Chinatown.
0: That sounds like so much fun.
1: I mean, you have to go get it yourself, which is right. not as fun. Oh, well, someone told me that by the 20s and 30s, Chinese restaurants would have cars and they would come and actually deliver it for you. There was I think one it was lady a. who was,
0: yeah, so the, is it, is it the Fortune Cookie Chronicles mm-hmm. uh, by Jennifer a. Lee is probably the best resource on Chinese food in America It's a fun ever. book. I've read many other books and they all put you to sleep. Uh, so go check out that one if you're interested in the topic. I believe there was one woman who started selling things like chop suey and she was the first delivery person, perhaps in general, and she would cook it up and you would, I guess, call her and she would walk to your house and then drop off the Chinese food and then walk right back to her restaurant and that was how delivery ended up getting started.
1: So I guess what I have to say in closing about chop suey is that in comparison to what we have available, even at your average American Chinese takeout restaurant today, chop suey is not that good. It's always this kind of like grayish mess of soggy gravy covered vegetables. But like for someone a hundred years ago, it was really different than everything else you were eating. And it was exciting. And it was a dish also that was newly created by Chinese immigrants here it was this entrepreneurial wonder that allowed them to survive in this country and because of this combination of events it's what allowed in the end Chinese takeout to happen what allowed the Chinese restaurant to happen and I mean there are more Chinese restaurants in America than there are McDonald's and Burger Kings all in this incredible network they're all independently owned
0: well the the magic thing about chinese restaurants is there is a whole industry around opening chinese restaurants because if you're an immigrant who comes to this country you might have the skills to run the restaurant and make the food and keep it going but in order to get through all the legal hurdles of opening up a business it's much more difficult so there's a whole breed of businessman and their only job is to open up a chinese restaurant And then sell it to you as a recent immigrant or as an immigrant who's uh made enough money here in america to be able to own your own restaurant and so they they found the restaurant they sell it to you and then they go on and they make more and there is actually a publication called the chinese restaurant newsletter or something like that and it is a publication that is solely dedicated to chinese people opening chinese restaurants And they will have uh, like classifieds in the back where they sell the restaurants and buy the restaurants. And they do analysis using census data on per zip code basis, which areas don't have enough Chinese restaurants. And they will recommend to people go to this zip code and open up a Chinese restaurant because there are, not enough to service the population of people there.
1: So how does that Chinese immigrant get to your local restaurant? That is amazing in itself. There are certain streets which are just organizations designed to hook up workers with Chinese restaurants across the country. And you go there and there are just lists essentially of the restaurant that's hiring and how many hours away by bus it is. And you just ship out from these bus depots that are based out of New York City on these buses that go all the way from here to the middle of the country, essentially, maybe even as far as the West Coast.
0: It's just a network of buses that generally are simply for restaurant workers to get to where they need to be, but then also people like us will ride them in order to get to D.C., on the cheap.
1: Exactly. But they stretch even further. So the person who's working in the kitchen of your Chinese restaurant probably actually lives in New York. And they're working there for a week, a month, three months. They might have a wife and kids that still live back here. And in fact, they might even belong to a church here. There are churches in New York City that offer services at staggered hours throughout the night so that people who are living and working across the country can tune in at different hours uh, via Internet and be a part of the services that are happening back here in Chinatown and still feel connected to the community, even though they're working in Boulder, Colorado. It's kind of crazy. It's all based out of Chinatown and New York City, which, by the way, the one in Manhattan is now only the second largest in the Western Hemisphere. Did you know that? No. The first largest Chinatown in New York in the world, Flushing, Queens. In
0: 1960, there were about 230,000 Chinese people in all of America. By 1970, there was almost half a million Chinese people. So they doubled in those ten years, probably mostly in the second half of the 60s. And then by 1980, it had doubled again to about 800,000. And then by 1990, we were up to 1.6 million. But the question is, did this flood of new immigrants become responsible for a change in American Chinese food? Yeah. Well, was it them or was it nothing but Richard Nixon doing the best that he could to make everyone eat chinese food
1: well it's a little bit of both because the flood of new immigrants brought different cuisines but it takes the adventurous american to to build the bridge right we got to be the ones to be able to go into chinatown and know what we're looking for too to know what peking duck looks like for example he built the bridge
0: he built that bridge so what he did was in the 70s he wanted china to be our best friend he wanted to You know, open up some trade, have everyone hate Russia. Uh, We would all be buddies. So he made a trip. He made a trip to China. And on this trip, one of the things you do when you're in another country is you eat the food Mm -hmm. of that other country. And so he never ate Chinese food, American Chinese food. Um, At home, he just ate, I guess, quote unquote, American food. Uh, He never really ate chop suey. He never really ate anything else. So when they asked him, what will President Nixon eat while he's here? The response was, the president will eat anything that is put in front of him. Now, if you're going to make a claim like that, I'm sure he didn't say that himself. I'm sure it was a little bit of posturing. But when you're going to another country... You're setting yourself up for something crazy to happen if you say you will eat anything that is put in front of you.
1: You would say that.
0: I would say that. I've also been to China, and I've had dishes where the best part of the dish was the entrails that I could tell were in there, and then I couldn't actually eat the meat. Because I'm not any good at eating things with bones. It's very mm. sad. I'm... i Hopefully have grown since I went there, but it was it was sad for me how inept I was. But I tried my best. I tried my best. And so Nixon decided he was going to try his best, and he was going to eat anything put in front of him. And he did what any brave man would do who was on a trip to another country with his family, and he made his wife eat everything before he did.
1: Shut up.
0: She was basically his royal taste tester to make sure that food was edible. So when you go, when you look up pictures of food during the trip to China, what you have is a ton of pictures of Nixon sitting at a table with like Joe in line, all these other people. Like Nixon's looking at his food and being like, what is this? I don't know if I can eat this. And it's all very strange. And then there are these photo ops of Pat Nixon. Like, yeah, look at me. I'm using chopsticks. I'm eating food. I'm having a great time.
1: Richard Nixon, you're so lame.
0: He did what he could. And also the the Chinese were really using food as kind of a weapon against people mm-hmm. uh, against the Americans where they would make a big speech at the beginning of dinner about how trade should go or how politics should go and the Americans were very grumpy about whatever the Chinese were saying, the Chinese politicians. And they'd be like, all right, before America responds, let's all eat. (laughs) And then they would eat. And the Americans are like, oh, man, Peking duck, what a good dish. I'm so full now. Yeah, anything goes. It's fine.
1: Peking's uh, old-fashioned word for Beijing.
0: Yes. 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 So what happened was Americans were watching all of this on TV. It was a very highly publicized visit. And as they saw Nixon eating all of these foods, they realized that chop suey was a lie. And that probably they should be finding other foods that were perhaps more authentic or perhaps fake authentic or filtered through the lens of what Americans want to eat, which is sugar all the time. And they ended up developing a new breed of Chinese food in the post-Nixon american consciousness
1: yeah even takeout like you can most big cities have a chinatown where you can go get varying degrees of authenticity if you're brave and maybe have a good friend you can go both to lower east side of new york and out to flushing if you're really good and get some super authentic blah 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 um but there's also even in terms of takeout we moved away from chop suey um and now takeout is mostly like Szechuan. And... But it's
0: Szechuan in the sense that they put a chili pepper next to it. Right. The, the number one ingredient that makes, two ingredients, say, that makes Sichuan cuisine, Sichuan is number one, overuse of chilies, number two, Sichuan peppercorns, which yeah. were banned until the early 2000s because they supposedly had a fungal blight for citrus trees on them. Mm. Um, but what a Sichuan peppercorn is is it's the husk of a peppercorn. It's not actually the peppercorn. And uh, it has a chemical reaction in your mouth that basically makes your lips and tongue numb as you are eating your food. So if you go out to eat takeout and your lips are not going numb while eating your Szechuan chicken, hey, guess what? It's not actually Szechuan chicken. Hey, guess what? You've probably never had real Szechuan chicken unless you have gone into a Chinatown To specifically get real Szechuanese food.
1: And Hunan is the other... Yeah, Szechuan and Hunan is what takeout is considered. But really the number one ingredient in, I would say, American takeout is probably corn syrup.
0: Yeah, corn syrup, absolutely. Uh, It makes a really, really good, really clean sauce. Mm -hmm. Also corn starch to thicken that sauce up. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is nothing but a sweet, sugary mess, question mark. It's delicious. Do you have a favorite Chinese takeout food? Hell yeah, General Tso's. General So's. Okay, so my God, General sos it's the best. It's the best because it's absolutely American Chinese food, arguably, but also General So was a real person yeah. in Chinese history. And I kind of like to pit him against Colonel Sanders because... You know they're both. You know they're bringing chicken to a brave new world, and they're both a colonel and a general. And it's kind mm-hmm. of like if you made them fight each other, mm-hmm. who would end up winning?
1: Uh, do you want me to tell you the answer? Sure. I mean, I didn't know if you were gonna like.
0: I mean, I can I can spin a, a yarn about the two of these guys. We can compare them on you know the different things that they accomplished. Do you want in me to life.
1: bet money now, and then you'll tell me if I'm right or not at the end? Sure. I'm going to put my money on General So, because from what I know, he actually probably fought somebody, and from <laughs> what I know about Kentucky colonels, there are a lot of them, and I know one Kentucky colonel, and is I don't think he's fought anybody. You know a
0: Kentucky colonel? Yes. That's incredible. Hi, Tyler. Ah, okay, so, we've got, we've got two people. We've got General So, and we've got Colonel Sanders, both real people. Colonel Sanders was born in 1890 in Indiana. And General So was born in 1812 in China. It's a big country, but bear with mm. me. So General So, when he wasn't a general, he got a really slow start in life. Like he went to school, he failed all of his exams, then he just went home to drink tea and study. So he basically took like a year off. What do people call that? Like, like between
1: a, high school and college? Yeah, yeah. Oh, shit, I don't know. We don't get it in America.
0: He took that year <clears> off. It just kind of chilled out. But the same thing happened with Colonel Sanders. He had to drop out of school and move, but it wasn't because his grades were bad. It was because his stepfather was beating him. Oh. So he kind of went through like a tough childhood and then, and then went to go escape that. So General So, uh, in 1850, the Taiping Rebellion broke out. So he was set up first as an advisor to the government, and then he was giving some troops, and he was kicking ass. He was really good at battle. He was really good at war. Uh, he was appointed uh, to be the governor general. And then he was put in the government's cabinet. And he was just like a boss at battle. He he just like... he When he was appointed to the cabinet, uh, you know, that's a position where you're going to be doing a lot of planning. And he was just like, look, I am not content with planning. I want to go kick ass. He demoted himself... To once again become like a warrior in the field, General So did. So that he he just wanted to kick ass. That's all he wanted to do.
1: I'm also puzzling because didn't also like Grant and or Lee fail at a military academy? I'm
0: sure everyone did. I feel I, there like were no real rules Every successful
1: then. military commander did not succeed in military school. Probably. Okay.
0: They thought outside the box.
1: Military historians, please comment about this below.
0: So, Colonel Sanders, you might think he wasn't in the military. Because you know Kentucky Colonel is not actually someone in the military. But, here's the thing. He was in the military. He lied on his enlistment form and joined when he was 15. Because he, you know, that was the thing back then. You wanted to join the military. You wanted to, like, get out of your house where your stepfather was beating you. You wanted to have a place Mm -hmm. to live. Uh, he was sent to Cuba to handle mules, and then he was honorably discharged four months later. Did he fight with Teddy Roosevelt? So, I... Probably not. Mm-hmm. Probably he just kind of pushed some mules around, and that he had a good time doing that. So, basically, he wasn't any good at the military. Uh, Colonel Sanders wasn't any good at the military. He took a bunch... Tried to have a bunch of different jobs after he got out of the military, his strenuous four months. He failed at all of them. He got married. His wife divorced him because he wasn't good at anything, mm-hmm. So, Colonel Sanders, so far, straight up not, not good at anything. Um, but what General So, how he is beaten by Colonel Sanders is chicken. General So never cooked chicken, he never cooked the chicken that bears his name. Colonel Sanders, on the other hand, he took a hold of a pressure cooker, started cooking chicken, opened up restaurants, and they became very popular very quickly.
1: There's that great radio lab out recently about numerology and, like, the magic science of numbers. It's not actually magic. It's science of numbers. And how many spices? 11?
0: Something like that. Yeah,
1: that it's it's people like the number 11 because it's, like, more than you can count to on your hands. <laughs> it's not 8 spices. It's That's not 12 a- spices. It's 11 spices. It's very so important. So just
0: out of reach. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, And the the reason why he is a Kentucky Colonel, which is an honorary title bestowed by the governor of Kentucky, Mm -hmm. it was because his restaurant was so good and so successful that the governor was like, oh, hey, you were really good at owning this restaurant and it tastes really good, so I'm going to make you a Kentucky Colonel. And he was like, that's great. I'm going to make an outfit to go with all of this. (laughs) So he then donned his stereotypical white suit and just wore it for the rest of his life.
1: Hunter S. Thompson wrote an essay about the Kentucky Derby and he said something about the colonels were like the guys in the white suits with the vomit on their shoes. Like they were good enough to, to not vomit on their suits during the derby, but they wouldn't be able to miss their shoes. He
0: was a Kentucky colonel.
1: Con- Hunter S. Thompson? Hunter
0: S. Thompson was a Kentucky colonel as was Billy Ray Cyrus and Bob Barker were all... Kentucky kernels
1: of course and here's a shout out to my other Kentucky friends so apparently they're doing this thing that's like shout outs to Louisville heroes where they're putting up these huge banners like the sides of building size banners to like all the biggest stars come out of Louisville and so, like there's all this petition to get one of Hutter s Thompson, and he has essentially like you know when Quiznos has a new specials on subs mm-hmm. yeah. that is the size and the quality of Hutter s Thompson's banner <laughs> on the side of a janky building somewhere oh. and so it finally happened that he got one and everyone is upset because it's just like flapping on the side of a Quiznos somewhere. Whereas, like, you know, Billy Ray Cyrus has got this in normal, and it's like, Billy is Louisville. I don't remember the exact goal, exactly right. the tagline, but it's something like that. So it's like a big thing. They don't want to say, like, Hunter is Louisville.
0: That's so sad. I
1: know. They need
0: to embrace all of their he's, I didn't colonels. know he was a
1: Kentucky colonel. I yeah. know he's already been embraced. They need to get over it at right. this point. Right. They
0: need to understand that he is just as important. <sighs> the reason why General So has chicken named after him uh, is because of the chef, Chef Peng. And he was from the same region as General So, and he wanted to name a dish after him. And so he had a restaurant in Taiwan, I believe, and he developed this new dish, and he called it General So's Chicken, which makes it, in theory, a Chinese dish. But what happened was these two chefs from New York visited this restaurant and both independently reproduced it Mm -hmm. here in New York City. And one of the chefs made it sweet and crispy... And the other one kind of kept Chef Pang's original recipe, and the sweet and crispy one is the one that you know won the hearts and minds of everyone in New York, and then everyone in America. And so what happens is, you know, Chef Pang is still alive. Um, he wasn't from the eighteen hundreds, and so people took pictures of General So's chicken to him, and said, Chef Pang, like you invented General So's chicken. It's incredibly famous in America how do you feel about that? And he's like, "Uh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, and then they show him a picture of it. Um, and his response is, this is absurd. (laughs) Broccoli isn't Chinese because like 50% of the ingredients in general says chicken is broccoli. And he's just like, this has nothing to do with the dish that I originally made. It is so different. and is unrecognizable. So he won't even take credit for being the originator of probably the most popular Chinese food in America. I mean it just it's it's interesting how it got brought over here as a traditional not even a traditional Chinese dish, a Probably new modern. Chinese a modern Chinese yeah. dish created it turned into a modern American Chinese dish.
1: We're going to get some general sauce chicken.
0: We are, we have to.
1: Every time we talk about it, every time.
0: So the the issue here is general so could clearly beat the shit out of Colonel Sanders, because Colonel Sanders was just some dude who wore a suit. But General So never actually made his own chicken. So if we're having, like, a food off...
1: If this is Kitchen Stadium...
0: Right. It depends on what kind of stadium we're in. Kitchen Stadium or Gladiatorial Stadium.
1: Right. That's fair. So, I guess, in closing, we should talk about probably the food that is the most iconic of... Our takeout meal. Like, if we've consumed our General Sows, we're going to end on a sweet note and we're going to crack open our fortune cookie.
0: Right. The most Chinese thing you could ever do. The most
1: iconic part of our Chinese takeout meal.
0: Because when you open that fortune, there's always some sort of, like, Confucius saying probably in broken English and then some sort of lucky numbers and maybe it teaches you a little slogan and you add uh, in in bed in the
1: end which was the most mind-blowing thing you learned in college to add in bed
0: in bed yeah and Mm -hmm. and everyone laughs forever (laughs) but the big secret is sure as we know now everything in Chinese food in America is not Chinese but it's also not Chinese American. Fortune cookies are fucking Japanese. They're Japanese. It's incredible.
1: I don't believe you. It's true. Tell me more. So
0: what happens is, in Japan, there are a bunch of shrines. And there's all kinds of really cool stuff outside of these shrines. People make food. People make mochi. There are things you can feed deer. It's all a lot of fun. You get fortunes from the shrines. Do whatever. And then, outside of Kyoto, you can actually get things that look exactly like fortune cookies. They're a little bit bigger, they're a little bit darker. Instead of having the fortune inside of the cookie, it's tucked in between the fold of the cookie. So think Mm -hmm. about the cookie as like a claw that is clamping down on a a Pac-Man. It's like a Pac-Man eating a fortune. Um, So it's pretty much exactly the same as an American fortune cookie in terms of how it looks. It's flavored with miso and or sesame, so it's not the same sort of vanilla sweet thing we have here but it's pretty much the exact same thing as a fortune cookie, but it comes from Japan. But then you say, look, how do you know that this really is the source of fortune cookies? How do you know that they didn't get that in Japan? How do you know it didn't come from China? You know, maybe it's like a newer invention. We actually have prints from the mid-late 1800s of people making fortune cookies in Japan. And you look at the print and you think, what is this guy doing here? Maybe he's making something else. Maybe it's not actually a fortune cookie. But then you go see how fortune cookies are made today if they're not made by a machine. And it looks exactly the same. Uh, It's a man with a bunch of kind of sticks and he's cooking fortune cookies basically it's it's incredible it's a little
1: hot wafer and you like press it around a a mold a mold yeah Yeah.
0: and so i tried to make them i found a recipe on a japanese website and it was called a miso cracker miso senbei in japanese and i translated the recipe and then i made these fortune cookies and they look kind of ugly i'll be honest they weren't (laughs) as dark crispy brown as they were in actual japan but they didn't taste that bad. I flavored them with miso, and they were they were pretty good. They were pretty good. But the thing is, how did they become something from, you know, Japanese shrine food into everyone's Chinese favorite takeout. dessert from Chinese in takeout? Yeah. yeah. So one thing that you alluded to before, I believe, was things went crazy around World War II. Now, in America in World War II, we did eat... Prior to world war ii we did in fact eat japanese food the japanese food and also chinese food kind of came with fortune cookies a little bit but all of the factories were run by japanese people but what's our favorite thing that happened during world war ii japanese people uh
1: internment camps internment
0: camps yeah so they said hey japanese people why don't you come hang out in this internment camp for a while and they said but i have a business too bad. Too bad.
1: And on the other hand, we forget that we were actually... We were allied with China, which is why we abolished we abolished race-based quotas, but then we were like, okay, 100 people a year can come in. So it was kind of, again, symbolic. But that's why Chinese people were allowed to then take over Japanese businesses. Yeah, they, they stepped in and took over...
0: Yeah, so by the time the Japanese business people got out of the internment camps, uh, they had been forced to sell everything at a loss... Uh, basically, to these Chinese people who then ran them and sold these fortune cookie factories to support Chinese takeout restaurants. So they ended up taking it over. LA and San Francisco were originally where all of the fortune cookie production was done, they were the big kingpins. But hey, we're New York City, so we can do everything better. Mm-hmm. And we started to do everything better, and now in, let's see, Brooklyn and Long Island City. We have Wonton Foods, which mm-hmm. we talked about earlier. Uh, and they're the number one producer of fortune cookies. In right the by world, my house. Right by your house. And they produce one million fortune cookies every day. And they tried to take fortune cookies back to China. Didn't really work. People would try to eat the paper, they'd have to put a lot of instructions on it. It was very sad. But I will say that Japan does have incredible things that. If you if you google the chinese for or the japanese for fortune cookie and you do google image search not even google japan but just normal google google image search for the japanese word for fortune cookies you come up with these incredible cookies that look like flowers oh. that have like three prongs coming off of them and they're colored with like yellow and pink and green and their fortunes kind of poked into them And they're beautiful and amazing, and I think someone really needs to bring those over here. I don't get to do it. If you
1: could come up with a fortune for this podcast, what would it be?
0: Uh, Chinese food is a lie, but it is also real. In bed. Oh!
1: That's all for the Masters of Social Gastronomy podcast. We will see you in a few weeks. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.